found on your insert. This is Hebrews 13.1. We actually have two more sermons in the book of Hebrews, and then we will have run the table with the book of Hebrews. And we will be moving into a new sermon series, which I will announce next week. So we're closing up here with Hebrews 13.1. Hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar for which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus suffered also outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I have a confession to make. I am on a diet. Actually, my wife calls it a lifestyle change. Now, you may be saying to yourself, wait a second, Carla's on a diet. You know, I'm, you know, skinny guys can die of heart disease too. And the truth of the matter is, even though I'm somewhat thin, I have a habit of eating whatever is in front of me. I'm known as the trash compactor of my family. And so Leon said, look, you've got to change things around here with what you're eating. And so she got uh, us this book, Eat to Live. Anybody read this, read this book yet? Don't read it. <laughs> You'll never go to McDonald's again if you read this book. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's very fascinating, and it's not rocket science. science. All the guy is simply saying is, look, you need to get... 90% of your energy from the things that have the most energy. What he's saying is that the American diet, we eat and consume things that don't have a lot of nutritional value. And as a result, we're never quite full because we, our body, you know, we may be eating stuff, but we're not getting the energy. And as a result, we keep eating and eating and eating until we've gotten enough energy, but the problem is we've gotten all the other stuff as well. And so he says, this is easy. What you need to do is start eating 90% of your food is the stuff that has the energy. And he gives sort of the, the list. You know, at the top is the green leafy vegetables, which have the most power in them. And then comes, you know, and it goes down the line to, you know, other vegetables and then fruits and then uh, breads. And it goes all the way down the line. He says you need to eat a pound of leafy vegetables a day uncooked, uh, and then a pound of cooked vegetables. So if you've been around my lunch table, I sort of sit down with this giant bowl 
of food and start eating it. But the point, truth be told, you know, aside from the detox where I'm starting to see the green monkeys and everything, you know, the truth of the matter is it's working. I, I feel more energetic because I'm getting the energy that I need to be able to run and work. The result is I'm, instead of spending as much time looking for energy, I'm spending more time using the energy that I already have. Now, what does this have to do with the sermon? I mean, after all, this isn't the Food Network. This is Church of the Redeemer. The reason I want to talk about food is because there's food for the body, but there's also food for the soul. It's like the human being has two stomachs. A food, you know, a stomach for the food and a stomach for the soul. And, you know, truth be told, the stomach that's more important is the stomach for the soul. In fact, all of our life is spent going around in this uh, pub crawl of life, looking for something that will satisfy the heart. What is it that satisfies the stomach? Well, it's good food. But what is it that satisfies the soul? I believe the answer is what we're looking for is unconditional love. Love is the thing that we need to satisfy and fill our hearts. You know, some person has said that all Christianity is, is one beggar going to another and saying, hey, I know where all the bread is. And in this church here, this church that this letter, the book of the Hebrews was written to, they have claimed to have found the solution to fill up their souls, the source of unconditional love. And his name is Jesus Christ. They have left everything to follow. They've changed their diet, if you will, trusting that Christ is the one that they've been looking for. But things have been hard. They've taken some shots from the world around them. Persecution for making these decisions to choose Christ. The world to say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. And in fact, it appears based on this and the text that there is this element. You see, these people are former, they're Jews who have become Christians. And so there's this Jewish element that has come into the church and is trying to pull them back to the ways of worshiping by the temple. See, remember the temple that God gave this Mosaic law, and you had to perform all of these different rituals, all of these observances, if you were to be considered righteous. And this Jewish element is coming to the church, and they're saying that the way to God is performance. Go back and do the things required by the law. If you perform, you shall receive. And the people are wavering. They're wondering, have we made a good decision? Surely we can identify with these people because we ask the same questions, don't we? I mean, truth be told, you're only here for two reasons. One is because you're a Christian and you're coming because you want to hear again, to be reassured that this is true, that Jesus is the one that we have been looking for. Or you're not a believer, but you're on the pub crawl, looking for someplace, something, someone that will truly satisfy and what the writer says, and what I'm saying to you, is that the answer to the person that we've been looking for is Christ. Because he offers something that no one else can. Grace. Because in grace, Jesus Christ performs, and we receive. Thus, the only bread that will truly satisfy your heart is the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you eat of this bread, his grace will not only satisfy you, but will actually overflow to the world around you. 
This passage helps to unbreak, uh, to talk about three specific areas of grace that I want to talk about today. Number one, God's grace is free. It's free for all who would take it. God's grace is free. Number two, God's grace is inexhaustible. You'll never, ever run out of it if you choose it. And finally, number three, God's grace is eternal. It's always been and always will be. So the premise is this, that the only bread that will truly satisfy your heart is the grace of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these three points. Number one, God's grace is free. Verse 9 tells us, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to Him. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. All right, so the writer is saying, don't be pulled away by these strange and diverse teachings that have to deal with foods. Talked a little bit about this, but this is the Jewish element that's come in and they've said, you need to obey the Torah, you need to obey the law. And to be sure, involved in the law was a variety of sacrifices that one had to make. So what people would do is they would go and they would make a sacrifice of a particular animal. But sometimes, particularly during the religious festivals, they would get to participate in eating of that sacrifice, eating of that food. Some would be offered to God in the temple, some would go to the priest, and the rest would go back to the people. And that they would eat and rejoice, and it would be a sign of them trusting in the sacrifice that was given. But he's saying here, so these people are saying, participate in the sacrifices. You've gotten away from these things. As a result, you don't have the righteousness of God because you're not performing the works of God. You're in trouble. But if we look at the Old Testament, we discover that God was never pleased with those sacrifices. Listen to the book of Isaiah where God speaks. Uh, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. See, the people were worshiping on the outside, but inside their hearts were diseased. See, it was just an outer thing. They couldn't cleanse the inner part of the heart. The heart that is diseased by sin. But the writer here is saying that there is a new altar that we can go to. That this old people, these old priests that participate in foods, they have no right to participate in. Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. There was one day in which a sacrifice was created and no one got to participate in eating of it. It was called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the one day in which a bull and a goat were brought into the temple, into the Holy of Holies by the high priest to offer sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation. And, the, and, the, and the, uh, the sin was laid upon them. And then after the blood was sprinkled on the altar, the bodies of the two animals were taken outside of the camp and they were burned. And no one got to participate in eating them. And that's what the writer is saying. That that is a picture 
of Jesus Christ, the one who has come, who is the true atonement, the one who died outside the gate. For Jesus Christ was crucified in a place called Golgotha, which was literally the trash dump of Jerusalem. That's where Christ was sacrificed. And the writer is saying that we have a new altar and it doesn't exist in the temple. It exists in a person, in Jesus Christ. And the priests and the people who follow this performance religion have no right to go there. Because the only way that you can go to Jesus Christ is on your knees, empty of hand. And so verse 13 says, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Go outside the camp. That's why he's saying, don't be led aside by these strange and diverse teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. The altar that we need to go to is the one where he performs and we receive. And so we must go and keep going. But we must come empty of hand, for there's nothing that we can bring to Christ. In reading this book, it's been interesting because I've learned a little bit about heart disease. Heart disease kind of works this way. You get this plaque as a result of eating the foods that you shouldn't eat and some of your genetic makeup. You develop this plaque which is, uh, develops around the rings of your coronary arteries. And what it ha happens is it restricts the flow of blood and oxygen to the heart where eventually you have failure because the heart shrivels, it's not strengthened, it becomes weaker and weaker and weaker until it finally fails. See, what this passage is saying here is that we must change what we eat because our tendency is to go to things that do not satisfy, that do not have nutritional content, that cannot satisfy the heart. Rather, they restrict our heart and disease it and make it weaker and weaker. What we need is a steady diet of grace. We must go to the altar of the one who feeds us. We must go to Christ. The truth of the matter is there are many temples in America, aren't they? None of us are really tempted to go back to the, uh, for the Judaic law, but there are many temples of performance. Maybe you're a teenager. You go to your school and you feel the pressure, the pressure to fit in, the pressure to look a certain way, own certain things, do certain things, run with a certain crowd. And when you do that, when you perform all the things required in the temple of high school or middle school, then you will find inexhaustible love. But the truth of the matter is it only leads to a diseased heart. Maybe you're a, a young woman and you're single, and you feel all the pressures around you, all the magazine covers that are saying to you, this is the way you're supposed to look. This is the way you're supposed to act. This is how far you need to be willing to go in terms of morally and other things to keep the person that you may want. And you feel the pressure to be someone that you're not. But that is the message of the temple, that if you want to experience unconditional love, that is the temple to where you must go. The question I have for you is, where are you going? Where is the temple that you're going to, to receive unconditional love? Because the temple of performance always leads to a diseased heart. And so, we must go to a new altar.
but we must go to this altar on our knees. See, the only way we can go to Jesus Christ is empty because our currency doesn't work there. Our beauty doesn't work there. Our money doesn't work there. Our acts of righteousness don't work there. But if we go empty, God will fill us for God's grace is free. And so we must go, but we must also go often, three meals a day, a pound of, of uncooked leafy vegetables, eating and eating, taking in, coming empty. I love what Jesus said, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the only bread that will truly satisfy your heart is the grace of Jesus Christ. God's grace is free. But this leads me to my second point, that God's grace is inexhaustible. You know, there's something that happens when your heart is filled. It overflows. I bought this fountain in my, uh, in my, at my old house in the backyard. And I love turning on the fountain. And I'd see the water start to bubble. And it would start to cascade down the sides and it would fill up this, you know, top tier. And once it started to flow, overflow, it would flow down to the next one. And it would flow down to the final one. God's, uh, the water was overflowing. And the truth is the sign of a heart that is filled with grace is love. Jesus said it this way, he who is forgiven little loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves much. And so love is the symptom of a heart that's been filled with grace. And so we see in this passage uh, several different relationships, four to be exact, in which we see this love overflowing as a result of grace. Number one, let, love, let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love. If there's one hallmark that is supposed to be in a church that's been transformed by grace, it's brotherly love. We're familiar with this word in the Greek, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? I have friends in Philadelphia, they call me that it's, the, uh, they tell me that it's the city of brotherly shove in Philadelphia. <laughs> but no, Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. What is brotherly love? Well, some of us have been involved with the family, and there's a love that's in the family that's a love that's different than anywhere else. Because it's a committed love, isn't it? We tell our boys and daughter this all the time. You know, you have many friends in life, but you only have a certain number of brothers and sisters. And they'll always be your brothers and sisters. And so brotherly love is a committed love. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain goes out, the two brothers, and, and kills Abel, and God comes to him. He says, where's your brother? And what does he say? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Let brotherly love continue. It's a committed love. But it's also an affectionate love. I don't know about you, but there's something about coming together around the table. About being together with family. With people that knows your foibles and your faults. With people that are like you. And enjoying the fellowship. Let brotherly love continue. A sign of a heart overflowing with love. Number two, this love is not only among brothers, among people who love Christ, but it's a love that extends to others as well. 
Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for some have entertained angels unaware. Back then, when somebody traveled, and they traveled around from place to place, it was a dangerous thing to travel. You know, if you stayed at the inn, there might be thieves staying at the inn who would, you know, kill you in your sleep. And it wasn't like there was a fast food restaurant in every corner, you know, in the ancient Near Eastern world. And so people relied on the courtesy and hospitality of strangers. And what the scriptures are saying is, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In fact, Christians, you should be on the forefront in terms of loving people that maybe other people wouldn't extend a hand to. He's saying to the church, reach out. Don't simply be insulated in your love. Rather, love those around you. This love continues even to the least. Number three, prisoners. Verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. There were friends and acquaintances of these people who had been in prison for their faith, who had lost jobs, lost opportunities, maybe even been imprisoned. And back then, if friends didn't bring you food and clothes, you didn't have any because there was no penal system like we have it today. They relied on the generosity of people. And the scripture is saying, don't forget those among you who are in harder circumstances than you. Reach out and care for them. And then four, the love that a spouse has for the other. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. I love this word. Let, the mar let marriage be held in honor. What the writer is saying is, after your relationship with God, the next relationship that is below that is the relationship that you have with your spouse. You're supposed to honor them, to lift them up, to give them a special place in your life, to honor them. In a world where marriage is dumbed down and is denigrated, you are supposed to honor your particular spouse. You do it in the way that you speak to them, the way that you love them, and in your purity of life. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. He's saying that you must honor your spouse in faithfulness to her or him, in your thoughts and in your actions as well. Finally, we see that God's grace empowers us to love not only these different groups of people, but to stop loving things as well. Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's saying this grace that overflows in your life helps you to love the right things and helps you not to love the wrong things. It's important to see here that it does not say keep your life free from money, but rather to keep your life free from the love of money. For if love becomes the ultimate thing in your life, it will enslave you, and you will never have enough. Rather, to look to God as the ultimate source of your life. So the point I'm trying to make with all of this is that the love that we have for everyone else is an outward manifestation about what's going on inside of our hearts. You know, the thing about a heart, it's hard to tell necessarily when it's sick, right? I mean, there's no way to pop the hood and kind of look on in there and check out what's going on. So doctors have developed these different tests, if you will, to be able to take a look at the heart. One is they run this thing called a stress test. 
Anyone ever run a stress test before? Yeah, I've never had to do one, but basically the goal is to put some stress on the heart. You know, they get you on a treadmill or they get you doing something and they monitor you with the echocardiogram and they monitor your heart to see how it's doing when things get more difficult and more difficult. They're monitoring, they're watching the symptoms based on your performance. And what I want to suggest to you, I want to do something. I want to run a little bit of a spiritual stress test on you and me in our congregation based on using the love that we have for the world around us. For the love that we have for the world is an indicator on what's going on inside of our heart. Let brotherly love continue. Have you and I formed bonds of affection, of brotherly love for one another? Are we committed to one another? Are there people in your life, in the body, that you lay down your life for and that they lay down their life for you? Or are you aloof and separate, not willing to commit to love and not willing to be committed to love? Let brotherly love continue. It's a part of who we are supposed to be. And the truth of the matter is, church, I can't create that. Those are bonds of affection that come between all of us. Hospitality to strangers. Show hospitality to strangers. How is your love to those other people around you? The person at the checkout counter. The co-worker in your cubicle across the way. Your neighbor who lives across the street. Is hospitality part of your life? Love overflowing from your heart into the world. Prisoners, how is your heart for the worldwide church? We don't experience friends who are in prison because of their faith, so this one is a little bit more difficult. But to be sure, there are people around the world who are in prison for their faith, who need our prayer, who need us to care for them. I think we have some things on Voice of the Martyrs over there. How about this one, marriage? It's been said that familiarity breeds contempt. But a heart of grace should create the exact opposite. Are you honoring your spouse? Are you thinking of what she wants and he wants? Are you putting them above yourself? How is the purity of your life in your actions and thoughts in this world where it's so easy to take shortcuts? Finally, how are things going with your money? Does it have a hold on you? Or has God's grace allowed you to open up your hands because your trust is in the one who saved you? If our hearts are weak, you know, the job of a preacher is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And I'm saying these things for you and I'm saying them for me. If our hearts are weak, my friends, we must have them strengthened by grace. We must go back to the gospel to know the love of God. We must get back in training. The answer is not to fix our actions. The answer is to fix our heart. Because God's grace is inexhaustible. And if we look to His grace, it will overflow into the world around us. God's grace is inexhaustible. But this brings me to my third and final point, that God's grace is eternal. See, it's easy hearing all of these things to bow your head and to be overwhelmed by them. How am I going to find all of this love for all of these people around me? 
when we receive this encouragement in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's saying, remember those who have come before you. It's in the past tense here. Remember your leaders. Remember those people who spoke the word of God to you and who saw in their life this, their faith lived out. Be encouraged that there are those who have gone before you, that this can be done, this life of love, this life of grace. But we're told not to imitate their life. You see that? We're told not to imitate their life. Not be like them in that sense. We're told to imitate their faith. Because the truth of the matter is they were as screwed up as you and me. The strength of their life was not in their actions alone. It was in their faith in Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ is the source of their life. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, this is the encouragement that we have. We don't put our trust in a philosophy, in a doctrine. We put our trust in a living person who never changes. Jesus was the same one that walked in the fiery furnace with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He was the same person that Paul put his trust in when he went around the world preaching the gospel. He was the same God that uh, Augustine put his trust in in the 4th century when he decided to follow Christ. And Martin Luther and John Calvin and all of the leaders who have gone before us, it's the same one. Jesus Christ, he never changes. And his love and his power and his promises and his grace are the same for them and the same for us today. It's Jesus who has come to give life to our hearts as well. He said in John 10, 10, that I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I don't know if anyone's heard the name of Louis, Louis Washkansky, maybe one person in this entire room. His fa he's famous because of one thing. He was the first person to receive a human heart transplant. 1967, he was a Lithuanian Jew who had gone to live in South Africa. He was an athlete. He loved to play sports. But he was not blessed with a strong heart and bad genes, and so he had several different heart attacks, the third leading to congestive heart failure. And it was pretty much all done for Louis Washkansky. There wasn't anything the doctors could do except one thing. Her name was Denise Ann Darvel. She was a 24-year-old female who was hit by a drunk driver, was pronounced brain dead, and brought to the hospital, and finally her body shut down. But you see, her heart was still good. There was still a chance for Lewis to be saved. And so with the permission of Denise's father, a heart was taken out of Denise, and it was put into Lewis's uh, place where he had, uh, his heart was taken out, and the heart started beating again. Lewis Washkansi received a new life. Washkansky should have been dead, but he was alive again. You see, you and me, we have a diseased heart. A heart that's been ravaged by sin. A heart that's in desperate need of forgiveness and grace. But there's no temple we can go to. No performance that we can put on 
that can fix the problem of our heart. But Jesus Christ was the one who was willing to give his heart that we might have a new one. And it was no accident, no car crash that led Jesus Christ to the cross. It was freely of his own volition. And it was with the full approval of his heavenly Father God. It's because of Jesus' heart transplant that God can give us the love that we need. If today you don't feel loved, I encourage you to come to the cross. That is where you will find grace. That is where you will find the forgiveness that you are looking for. If you don't feel like you have the love to give to others in my marriage, to my brothers and sisters, to my co-workers, to my neighbors, to my people around, come to the cross. Come to the heart of Jesus Christ. Because the only bread that will truly satisfy your heart is the grace of Christ. And if you eat of this bread and keep eating, Again and again, His grace will not only satisfy you, but overflow to the world around you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that we have, do not have to keep on this perpetual treadmill of performance, trying to muster up something that would take away our sins, something that would create approval with you. But rather, you have created a means of grace, Jesus Christ, who is grace himself, who gave us his heart, replacing our diseased one, that we might have life in him. Lord, help us to go to that which truly satisfies, that truly has um, what we need for our heart. And Lord, help us to rely on you to give love to the world, because we have no love to give aside from the love that you give us. But you say to us that you will give us the love that we need and that it will literally overflow to the world around. Lord, that's the people that we want to be. And so we come to you desperate and thirsty. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.